1: this hour of the costa report is brought to you by ibm big data at the speed of business
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military who are joining us today. Thank you for being with us again. In just a moment, acclaimed journalist with Al Jazeera and co-host of Fault Lines, Mr. Josh Rushing, will be joining us to talk about the fight against ISIS and why a 14-year career Marine decides to join Al Jazeera. But before Mr. Rushing joins us, let me tell you a little about his background. Josh Rushing was born in Louisville, Texas, and quickly proved to be a spirited and rebellious thinker. At age 13, his parents enrolled him in the Marine Military School in Harlingen, Texas, where, surprisingly, he quickly felt at home. By age 18, Rushing was ready to enlist. He shipped to boot camp in San Diego, Camp Pendleton, for infantry training, and was later assigned to the Marine Defense Information School in Indianapolis, where he was encouraged to work in public affairs. Then in 1995, Rushing became part of the Marine Enlisted Commissioning Education Program, which allowed him to enroll in the University of Texas, where he earned degrees in ancient history and classic civilization. He moved to Quantico to undergo officer training to become an aviator, but a hearing loss rerouted Rushing back into public affairs. Rushing transferred to Los Angeles and began working in the Marine Corps Motion Picture and Television Liaison Office. Now, for any other Marine, this would have been a dream assignment, but not for Rushing. He volunteered to prepare for the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and was assigned to the U.S. Central Command in Qatar, where he acted as spokesperson for General Tommy Franks. And this is where Rushing's story takes an unexpected right turn. Rushing appeared in a documentary film called Control Room, where he spoke openly about the realities of war. Soon afterwards, he received orders not to speak to the media further. But according to Rushing, how else could the truth be known? So following 14 years of service and with no job in sight, Rushing stepped down for the Marines. One year later, he found himself staring at an offer to help launch Al Jazeera English, a network whose reputation for news coverage was often brutal and disturbing. Rushing joined Al Jazeera, and today he's the co-host of Fault Lines. The New York Observer calls Rushing the Al Jazeera Anderson Cooper, and GQ Magazine compares him to Matt Lauer. But regardless of whom you compare him to, you have seen his stories on every major news outlet around the world. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report a courageous journalist whose pen proved to be mightier than his sword, Mr. Josh Rushing. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Rushing.
3: Wow! Thanks for having me. What an intro. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think we, I think our producers get all most of those facts right, um, and uh, we're so pleased that you could make time to be with us. Now, now before we tackle this very complex issue of who ISIS really is and whether the U.S. has uh, ground has ground forces uh, in Iraq or Syria, uh, I want to address the public's reaction to a 14 year career Marine joining Al Jazeera. So l- let's start today's program there. The the American public associates al jazeera with terrorist propaganda so tell tell us why that is
3: yeah i don't think that's as true as it used to be i think i think that was very true 10 years ago maybe even five years ago um when i first encountered al jazeera i didn't know much about it it was in 2003 and i was the spokesperson for central command um And I would go on regularly and and, and give interviews about what the U.S. was doing during the invasion of Iraq. And Al Jazeera is headquartered in Doha, Qatar. So is U.S. Central Command Forward. So uh, working for General Tommy Franks, I was there in Doha. So I I would give interviews to a lot of stations. I mean, Fox, NBC, everyone. But when I would do Al Jazeera, I I would be able to go into their studio rather than do it by satellite because they were across town. So it gave me a sense of of what they were, and it it was kind of fascinating at the time you had Rumsfeld saying that they show beheadings over and over and over again, that they're the mouthpiece of Al Qaeda, like these things, right? And and I'm sitting there looking at their coverage daily, and I can see their code of ethics. It's on the website. It's written on the wall. I, I start talking to them about it. They've never shown a beheading in the history of the network. Al Qaeda hates them. Bin Laden's called for attacks against them. They've been kicked out of every country in the Middle East because of the Middle Eastern regimes aren't used to an Arabic channel challenging them with, you know, like actual journalism. And so I thought, man, I I've just never seen an issue that we've gotten so radically wrong. Um, and and after I saw what it wasn't, I saw what it was, and what it was was was. Enormously influential. Whether you agree with their perspective, the way they see the world or not, everyone in the Middle East was watching it. From Morocco to the border of Iraq, everywhere they spoke Arabic, it's what people were watching, not just in their homes, but like if you went into a restaurant, this is back in 03 a restaurant, a barbershop, a hookah lounge, whatever, they were watching Al Jazeera. It was literally the engine driving the debate across the entire region. And so I would tell Central Command, look, if if this is really about democracy and kind of changing the region, then what's happening on Al Jazeera could be more important than what's happening in Iraq. In fact, the way most people in this region will even know what's happening in Iraq is by seeing it through the prism of Al Jazeera. So we should be significantly engaged in the discussion there, and Al Jazeera wants us to be. They, they, they want to interview us and have us on as much as possible. But I couldn't really gain traction for that Uh, viewpoint at Central Command.
2: Now, why? Why couldn't you get any traction? Uh, Obviously, you were working for the Marines, so you had no vested interest in misrepresenting Al Jazeera's agenda. Uh, So why couldn't you get any traction?
3: Yeah, and it's not like I was, you know, the new kid on the block. I joined the Marines at 17 years old, and I had worked my way up from private to captain. Um, I had a successful career. I I was well regarded. But the truth is, I was... um, one of a handful, very small teams selected to be on camera for Central Command for this invasion. So that speaks to how well regarded I was, but I was the junior member on that team by rank. And, and so that tells you two things. One, why it's such an important channel given to such a junior member, and that speaks to that we didn't understand its significance. Um, It's not that I had a background in in the region or that I even spoke Arabic. Uh, It just got pushed to me because I was the junior guy. Two, it tells you the influence I had within that group being the junior guy, my opinion essentially could only go so far. Three, another reason is our media office there at Central Command was – taken over by the Bush administration shortly before the invasion. So normally Central Command has a colonel that is in charge of public affairs. And uh, at the time, this is 10 years ago, it was an Air Force colonel who had been in the Air Force for 25 years or so. Um, But shortly before the invasion, the Bush administration uh, gave an individual in its offices, a, the equivalent of a two-star ranking, a two-star general, which is very high up. He was probably 32 years old at the time. It normally takes about 30 years to get to that rank. And uh, he had been a, uh, a campaigner for the Bush campaign. He had worked in Dick Army's office in India. Um, so he had this kind of uh, Politico-type background and he ran the information operation campaign for U.S. Central Command during the invasion of Iraq. So he was very Republican, and he had a very specific view of the world, including Al Jazeera, that was coming out from mostly Republican hardliners at that time as, as to what it was. But now things have radically changed. I mean, a few years ago when Hillary Clinton was still Secretary of State, she was testifying in front of Congress and they asked her about what was happening in Egypt with Tahir Square. And in the middle of her answer, she says, at the State Department, we're all watching Al Jazeera English. And if you Google Hillary Clinton Al Jazeera English, you can see her comments online. But she says there's no talking heads or commercials. You feel like it's, it's real news and that we're not getting that kind of news in the U.S. That same year, I hosted a forum in Washington, D.C. that John McCain was the keynote speaker of. And John McCain said, I watch Al Jazeera in my office all the time. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, I will never see like I'll, I'll never have a chance to be so right about something again and get to see the issue change. And now just yeah. this year, they've launched Al Jazeera America across the U.S. My show, which has been on Al Jazeera English for six years, had its first year on here. It, we're nominated for two Emmys. So in, on Monday, they have the Emmys for News. Yes. And there are four nominations. We'll go ahead. We're two, and 60 Minutes is the other two.
2: Yeah, that's, and congratulations on that. I was going to get to that in just a moment. But we've got to take our first scheduled break. When we come back, we're going to talk about who ISIS really is and why Rushing says the situation is complex. You're listening to the Costa Report. Mm-hmm.
1: No matter what business you're in, what happens in Washington can make the difference between business success or failure. That's why understanding where government is headed is so important in today's competitive business environment. But where can you find experts who know firsthand the inner workings of our nation's capital? The American Program Bureau is your leading source for speakers whose experience offer unique insights into where U.S. policy is headed. Speakers like Seth Harris, former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor, Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, and General Carl Eikenberry, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. For your next meeting or conference, contact the American Program Bureau at APBSpeakers.com or 617 614 1600. That's APBSpeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history. One speech at a time.
2: Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction, and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did.
4: Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years. And what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. The science fiction writer Theodore Sturgeon once said that 90% of everything people know is wrong. And unfortunately, evidence of this observation, now known as Sturgeon's Law, is nowhere more obvious than in the world of health and nutrition. For years, doctors and dietitians have extolled the cardio health virtues of keeping fat intake low. But as it turns out, without a healthy dose of fat in the diet, the body can't absorb many heart-healthy nutrients from food. Vitamins like E and A and minerals like calcium and zinc, vital for the health of the circulatory system in the heart, all require activation of the fat absorption system in the digestive tract. And activation of this system requires a healthy dose of dietary fat. Many folks know that cholesterol causes heart disease, but as it turns out, not only is there no causal connection between cholesterol and heart disease, but cholesterol as an important raw material for the production of many heart-healthy compounds, including coenzyme Q10 and testosterone and vitamin D, is actually one of the most heart-friendly of all molecules made in the body. And speaking of cholesterol, it's common knowledge that maintaining heart health means avoiding or reducing the amount of eggs you eat. But once again, Sturgeon's Law rears its perceptive head. Eggs are one of the most important health foods anyone could ever eat for the heart, the circulatory system, the brain, and everything else in the body. And what's more, all of the good stuff is in the yolk. The magnesium, the zinc, calcium, B vitamins, vitamin D, carotenes, vitamin A, protein, and lecithin, and good fats are all found in generous amounts in the nutritional golden center of the incredible edible egg. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that i personally use and recommend you can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com that's kscohealth.com i'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work go to kscohealth.com make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com that's kscohealth.com
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is acclaimed journalist for Al Jazeera and host of Fault Lines, Mr. Josh Rushing. And before the break, you were describing the transformation Al Jazeera has gone through in terms of uh, perception here in the United States from Rumsfeld calling them the mouthpiece of Al Qaeda to John McCain and Hillary Clinton Clinton saying that uh, they're getting their news from Al Jazeera and I, I think a great deal of this evolution came from the decision to launch Al Jazeera English would you agree
3: yeah yeah I think so Al Jazeera English has um, been extremely well received I was one of the first people on the team to launch that and I, I think you know we're in over 100 countries and like I don't know, three or 400 million homes now we've won every award that, you know, international news can win, including the the channel of the year from the Royal Television Society. So, yeah, Al Jazeera English has gone a long way. And frankly, look, if you're in the U.S. and you care anything about international reporting, let's say your life is influenced by, it, like, members of the military or, or someone like that, they tend to really like Al Jazeera English if they can get it. Because particularly with television news, it's so difficult to get international reporting. Um, that's frustrating if those kind of events actually you know, shape the daily events of, of your life. So I know a lot of people at the Pentagon that watch Al Jazeera English exclusively now.
2: Yes. Now, speaking of international news, uh, you recently used the word complex to describe the situation with ISIS, and you point out that there seems to be a great deal of oversimplification oversimplific- in terms of understanding exactly who the members of ISIS are. So could you explain to us who the actors inside ISIS are and where they originated and, and why you believe the issues are more complex than have been explained by leaders and perhaps portrayed by the media.
3: Yeah, just to give you a touch of background on that, about a month ago I was in Iraq and I traveled the 600-mile front line between the Islamic State... And Kurdistan the kind of semi-autonomous northern part of Iraq I started on the Syrian border and I went all the way to the Iranian border and what I saw on both sides of the front line was far more complex than I think we tend to get in the narrative about it here in the US Um, and and my comments refer specifically to the Islamic State in Iraq not as much Syria but in Iraq on say that side of the front line referring to the Islamic State I think we have the notion that it's it's these foreign fighters that we keep seeing in the beheading videos and hearing so much about, when the truth is, I think their numbers are quite small in Iraq, that most of them that are fighting in Iraq that we're calling Islamic State are actually Sunni tribesmen. And so um, the reason they're doing it, and they started protesting kind of a Tahir Square style protest about a year and a half ago in the Ambar province, because the Sunnis in Iraq have been completely disenfranchised by the Shia government. And this has been true for like the last eight years. And just a few examples of that are like the embassy here in Washington, D.C. has 73 employees, the Iraqi embassy. They're all Shia. We have Iraqi pilots going through our military flight schools. They're all Shia. In Iraq, the government controls a lot of the jobs because of the way it's been set up there. They all go to Shia. So the Sunnis feel left out. They start protesting and Maliki responds with helicopter gunships and firing into the crowd. And then with a bombing campaign in Ambar over the last month, dropping barrel bombs out of supply planes. And these are, particularly insidious, because you can't really control them, where they land. And if you're dropping those in Ramadi and city centers, they're just indiscriminate in who they kill. So this is how Maliki responded to it. So what started as a protest for the Sunni tribes has boiled over into what they call a revolution, And I'm not sure in the U.S. we fully appreciate how powerful the tribes are, but I sat down with a tribal leader, Ali Hattam, who's the leader of the Al-Duhayn tribe. It's the largest tribe in Iraq. He's got about 2 million people in his tribe. 60% are Sunni, 40% are Shia. He has 600,000 armed men, and he is revolting against the Shia government. So he's leading an, an ethnic conflict, a civil war that's now being painted in the West as the Islamic State, and they're all Islamic State, and they're all these same bad guys, and now we're leading a coalition to start bombing these Sunni tribesmen, when in fact, not that long ago, we were working with the very same Sunni tribesmen, Ali Hantam, for example. I have a photo of him with Obama in 08. These are the guys that were on, were on the Awakening Council. These were the tribes that turned against al-Qaeda in the first place back in 06, 07 to work with U.S. forces and kick al-Qaeda out of Iraq back then. We're now bombing those guys in the name of the Islamic State when they're actually fighting against Maliki, not against the West.
2: Now, this Um, is going to uh, sound a little bit unusual, but you now have someone like Tom Ridge, the first Secretary of Homeland Security in the United States, uh, saying that uh, ISIS... Is being treated like it's a terrorist organization, but it's actually a military. It's it, it it's it's a bona fide military. They've occupied territory. They've got six hundred thousand armed men. Uh, this really isn't a terrorist intervention.
3: Yeah, I, it, it's funny the way you catalog ISIS and what we call ISIS. I think is extremely important and and probably under discussed. I would call the majority of what's happening in Iraq ethnic conflict, uh, religious sectarian conflict, and maybe a civil war or a revolution. Which questions, should the U.S. be involved in that at all? Now, as far as the foreign fighters, they're mostly in Syria. Some have definitely gone into Iraq. Yeah, you could call them a military. You could also call them a state. I mean, they collect taxes. They have checkpoints at their borders. They have um, a lot of like domestic rules and laws they 're operating as if they are a state and so I, you know it doesn 't surprise me to hear him refer to that one part of it that they 're a military, yeah, sure, every state has a military and and the Islamic state certainly does as well. But I think by conflating all the violence that's happening in Iraq, if you're Sunni, you're Islamic State, I think we could be making a, uh, a geographic and strategic error in the way we understand the problem that we're about to get involved with. And I will say this, I was there right after uh, within days of the US airstrikes starting, and I was on the front line and commanders of Shia militias and of the Peshmerga who are fighting the Islamic State told me that the airstrikes are a game changer. Mm-hmm. My big question is, does the U.S. understand the game? It's changing.
2: Well, that's a good question. Now, uh, you being a journalist who travels into these dangerous areas, uh, I have to ask you about Foley and Sotloff. Um, the, these began as straight money for hostage talks, and when the money didn't materialize, then they sort of evolved into retaliation for airstrikes. And I, I'm a little bit confused about the motives of ISIS in terms of these kidnappings. Is this a, a matter of money? Is it revenge? Is it publicity? I mean, what's, what's your feeling about um, these journalists and, and, uh, and also about your own safety?
3: So all these kidnappings happened about two years ago and mm-hmm. in Syria. None of them happened in Iraq. And there became this kind of open commodities market for Westerners being kidnapped. And they would be kidnapped by a smaller group and like traded up to a larger group and sold off to another group. And Islamic State bought most of these guys that are now in their possession. And they did it for first the money. So they've gotten in the last couple of years, Islamic State, over $125 million in ransom paid mostly by european governments so this is a significant source of income for the islamic state the u.s doesn't want to be a part of that so they have the policy of not paying
2: mm-hmm. now we're going and, to have to unfortunately take another commercial break but uh, sure. stay right where you are we'll be right back with more from josh rushing and we'll uh, pick this up on the other side of the break you're listening to the costa report
5: Big Data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors and mobile devices transmit it. Big Data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage – allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash bigdata.
2: Care from the Heart is a local family-owned
0: business. Hello, my name is Jackie Tucker, owner of Care from the Heart. Our family has provided caregiving services in our community for over 18 years. I'm Jane Crow. I live on the Salva Beach, and the first time I contacted Care from the Heart was in 2007. My mother got to a point where she needed round-the-clock care, and we, as a family, were unable to provide it. For my family and myself, it was relief for us. We knew she was in good hands
2: and she wasn't alone. A few weeks ago, a very dear friend of mine in the final stages of cancer also got to the point where her family and friends were unable to take care of her. Once again, I reached out to Care from the Heart. To care was probably for our hearts as much as my friend who was dying, and it was a great sense of relief for us, and they sent terrific people.
0: When you or your loved one is in need of our care, please call area code
2: 831-476-8316. Our website is carefromtheheart.net. We are honored to serve you.
1: It's Healthy Way Radio, and today we're talking with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi, how are you? Pretty good. I understand the program's working well for you.
0: Oh, yeah, it's great. I'm a 63-year-old woman, and I've lost over 90 pounds and more than 120 inches, and I've gained a new lease on life.
1: You found a new way to exercise with your grandkids.
0: Out on the trampoline with them the other day. And I've been easily walking three miles a day and enjoying it.
1: Susan, what's your favorite part of the Healthy Way?
0: Knowing that I'm getting good nutrition. My body's really responded to it, and it changed the way I eat. What's really helped me is the one-on-one counseling. It helps me to be accountable. They're compassionate and loving. I've been overweight for my entire adult life. Nothing. Nothing has worked like this program
1: has worked for me. This could be you. Call 462-5900. Go in for a free consultation
5: at The Healthy Way. We always knew Dr. Guy Peabody to be an excellent dentist, and so we're not surprised when, once again, Dr. Peabody was voted best dentist in Santa Cruz County in the Good Times Reader's Poll. But you do not need a Reader's Poll to know how good Dr. Peabody is. Just ask his patients.
3: Hi, I'm Robert. I have found Dr. Peabody to be a wonderful dentist and I would most highly recommend him to anyone.
5: My name
0: is Ramona. My dentistry has never been better. I have beautiful teeth now. Was a very comfortable delightful experience and I would recommend him to anyone.
6: My name is Terry. I
3: am terrified of going to the dentist and they told me about the guy Peabody sedated
6: dentistry. They're really great people.
5: Visit drpeabody.com, that's drpeabody.com, or better yet, give Dr. Peabody's office a call at 457-0343 and be warmly welcomed and assisted in scheduling your appointment. That's 457-0343. You will be happy you called Santa Cruz's Choice for Best Dentist.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is Josh Rushing, who was explaining that ISIS had been successful at raising ransom money from European nations in the past, and and this was beginning to look like a profitable business. But when the U.S. refused to pay, it turned into something else. So let's pick it up from there. Sure.
3: So there's like a two-pronged, uh, well, I was going to say effect, but maybe hope is is... Uh, the better word, for the U.S. not paying ransoms. One, they hope that it means that uh, groups will be less incentivized to kidnap Americans because they know they won't get money. Two is U.S. dollars, tax dollars, won't be going to fund groups like the Islamic State. Um, I think that kind of makes sense on paper, although I've, I've seen no evidence that it actually works. I, I've seen no evidence that an Italian is more likely to be kidnapped than an American. Because even besides the ransom, Americans hold a particular strategic value and that is these videos, like you know, the two beheadings that you brought up those are much more strategically valuable in recruiting and what that does for the worldwide messaging of a group like the Islamic State than when they behead um, a a French mountain climber in Algeria, for example, Mm -hmm. which is the the most recent beheading video. So I don't think the ransom thing works. I, I get the idea of Worried about where your your money is going, um, I understand that concern, but in terms of it making Americans uh, less likely to be kidnapped that 's not something I really believe now the, the, one of the important issues I would say is since these start, kidnapping started in Syria about two or three years well two years ago, um, most of the major news organizations pulled out of Syria. It was just you couldn 't operate there it was too dangerous. But what a lot of them did is they started taking the work from freelancers, and now they were getting this work really cheap. They weren't having to pay for kidnapping um, and ransom insurance, which my company pays for me when I'm over in that part of the world. They weren't having to pay for security guys, which is really expensive, which my company pays for me when I'm in that part of the world. These are the kind of external costs that make reporting in these danger zone, so expensive. Well, when you're just paying a freelancer, you're really kind of exploiting his labor. You're putting a him at risk and, and you're not paying anything for that risk. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time in the American media landscape that they start to have a discussion about whether that's really ethical or not. Now, I know a lot of major organizations are starting to pull away and say they will not do that anymore. But that strategy also comes with a risk. Once you stop paying for these freelancers who are brave enough to go in and take these risks to tell the stories, now you're letting Syria become a black hole. And do you really right. want a black hole in a place that we're talking about U.S. conducting airstrikes, about maybe putting boots on the ground at some point, about coordinating with boots on the ground? How do we know anything about the area that we're getting, getting militarily involved in? And so there are, there are risk and dangers on both sides of the issue. But I think in media today, this is one of the most important things we should be talking about in the way we do international coverage.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, boots on the ground and uh you recently made the point that uh, we're uh, claiming to limit U.S. involvement to air strikes, and that there are no ground forces. Uh, but uh, uh, you claim that may not be entirely true. I, I think you make the point that ground forces call in these strikes on specific targets, and uh, Americans are working alongside Iraqi and and some Syrian forces. Can can you clear that up for us today?
3: Well, I mean, I can certainly confirm it. Um, about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, when I was in Iraq, uh, the hottest fighting at that moment happened to be near the Mosul Dam. Uh, US airstrikes made an enormous difference in the battle to regain the the Mosul Dam. Those airstrikes were what we call close air support. They were coordinated with friendly forces on the ground. Now, there's a real difference between, say, predator strikes in um, Pakistan or um, strikes in Syria right now in Raqqa where you don't have friendly forces on the ground those can be launched without any coordination on the ground. Like the pilots leave, they have a target, they have coordinates, they know what they're going to drop and where they're going to drop it. But when you're working with friendly forces on the ground and close air support, there's a lot of coordination that has to happen to make sure you're not dropping your bombs on what would be called the good guys, to make sure you're not using the kind of explosive ordinances that would blow back toward them. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be worked out. So what that means is someone on the ground has to talk to the pilot. They're not doing that with an iPhone and they're not doing (laughs) that in casual conversation. This guy's going 500 miles an hour with 500 pound bombs under each wing. So it's, it's a certain report where things are said in a very specific order about Um, the direction it should go, the type of uh, ammunition they should use, what they should hit. Um, And so for a person to know that, I had that training in the U.S. Marines. It takes quite a bit of training, and that training is coming from the U.S. So anytime that there's close air support happening, you can bet that there's going to be U.S. guys, special forces normally, on the ground and very near. So when I was near the Mosul Dam, I ran into these U.S. Special Forces guys. Now, because I was media and, and they, don't, they don't want to talk to media, it was a short conversation and I didn't get to film them, but they certainly were U.S. I mean, and I did get to speak to them. And, they, and of course, I know what they what, what would
2: what like. be our reason for saying that we're conducting only airstrikes and that we do not have any uh, boots on the ground?
3: My guess presumably is that President Obama wants to be the president that pulled combat troops out of Iraq. He wants his legacy to be that he ended the war. And now in the final two years, they're taking on a mission that the Pentagon has already said could last years. He doesn't want to be the president that reopens combat forces on the ground in Iraq. So I, I think it has a lot more to do with the battles that happened in Washington than the battles that are happening on the ground in Iraq.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so this is basically posturing. Uh, and, uh, really, uh, it's also, uh, uh not truthful, not, tr- it's really not telling the truth. We do have special forces on the ground. Um, it seems to me we send out a confusing message to our allies who are probably, I mean, if you and I figured it out, uh, have to assume the allies figured it out as well. Uh, we're sending a confusing message to say, we want you to uh, team up with us, but we don't have any ground forces.
3: Yeah, well, and to be fair, the ground forces we have are are not major combat units. We're talking about very small teams of special forces, special operators. So you're not going to see U.S. forces taking a city or um, winning a battle. These Mm -hmm. are guys who operate quietly. And they have to operate with other, with major ground forces like, you know, Peshmerga units or or whoever they're operating on the ground. Those are going to be considered the actual boots on the ground. And these guys are just kind of liaisoning with U.S. air power. But it's interesting that you mention teaming up with allies because. I learned two things as I traveled the entire front lines. One, the nature of what was on the other side, the Islamic State, which I I think is much more a Sunni tribal issue than these foreign jihadi fighters in Iraq, not in Syria, but in Iraq. And the other thing, the nature of what's on this side of the front line was even more fascinating. There are all sorts of groups, and they're working right beside each other. And these are groups that hate each other. And there's like almost no coordination between them, so much so I was in a village, Suleiman Bek, and, and I was hiding behind a wall from snipers, and I was with Peshmerga fighters, which represent Kurdistan. They're, they're a Kurdish militia, essentially. I darted across an alley behind another wall, and it's all Shia militia fighters. And these guys are called League of the Righteous. They <laughs> broke off from Maktata al-Sadr's guys. They're Iranian-backed. They are uh, definitely not in, an ally of the U.S. In <laughs> yes. fact, they used to fight U.S. forces. So they're in a battle that is being... Predicated by U.S. airstrikes. U.S. airstrikes that hit there the night before. So while all these groups, and, and I, I ran into Maktad al-Sadr's guys, the Medi Army, I ran into PKK guys, which are Kurdish rebels that are considered, they're on the terrorist list group for both NATO and the U.S. Um, they're all fighting the Islamic State, which puts them on... The, the U.S. side of the issue, I guess. I ran into Iranian artillery men from the Quds Force that were shelling a town held by this Islamic state or working with Peshmerga. So all these guys are fighting it, but they're also serving their own self-interest, right? All right. Well, what so we, we have is, is a lot of first, siloed.
2: Yeah. We have a lot of silos and we have a lot of independent groups uh, who don't get along and aren't going to be coordinated by any single force. Uh, and as you, you, use the, you rightly use the word complex, it's com- complicated to even fight the ISIS organization. Yeah, I
3: I would definitely agree with that. And I would also say that there are no good guys. And the the simple binary that we tend to use in the U.S. is this good versus evil. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you hear ISIS referred to this all the time as evil. So anyone fighting them as good, I think that is dangerously oversimplistic.
2: Yes, I I agree with you. Uh, But, you know, that's the way that the media portrays it. And then uh, that tends to filter up to government. We make decisions that are black and white rather than really... Uh, diving into that uh, very messy gray area. Now, we have to take our last break, but stay right where you are. We'll be back after these important messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report.
5: Big data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, big data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today.
2: I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, and I have a question for you, Scott. What goes into making Method Champenois bubble?
4: You know, it's a process that's really defined by the French government that we've taken and enacted into our wines, which really drive the quality of our sparkling project.
2: So this is a process that the French government defines pretty specifically, and you remain faithful to that.
4: Yeah, 100%, and in some places we push it a little bit.
2: Now, how do the bubbles translate on the palate?
4: You know, it really gives you that vehicle, that mousse for the character of the sparkling wine, carrying the fruit and the complexity. It's the expression of the wine. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolissellers.com, or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Sellers, C A R A C C I O L I Sellers. Come taste the difference.
1: Be a friend. Be a mentor, and just be there for a kid. Hi, I'm Will Lewis with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Santa Cruz County. Be a mentor and be part of a positive change. It's easy and fun, and it only takes a few hours to make a lasting difference in a child's life. Share your joy of biking, surfing, or baking with one of the 75 kids on our waiting list. For more information about Big Brothers Big Sisters of Santa Cruz and how you can help, please call us at 464-8691 or visit us at santacruzmentor.org.
6: Greetings, folks. This is Randy the Realtor. You may have heard my ads before on this station, and I'm here to tell you that MZ is right. He doesn't let stupid people listen to his radio station. Everyone who called me because they heard my radio spots have been very intelligent and wonderful people that I was glad to even have had a conversation with. A couple of my most recent contacts are Louis and Susan. They recently opened an antique clock shop in Aptos on the corner of Trout Gulch and Soquel Drive. Go buy and visit them. If you need a nice antique clock or need one repaired, stop in and see them. If you need to buy or sell a home, give me a call. I'll make your transaction run like clockwork. Call Randy the Realtor at 831-566-2590. That's 831-566-2590. Or visit my website at aptoshomefinder.com. Ed Robertson inviting you to join us for the next edition of TV Confidential. Sunday morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. here on KSCO AM 1080 in Santa Cruz. And if all goes well, our guests that night will include actress and author Don Wells, Mary Ann from Gilligan's Island. It's TV Confidential every Sunday morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on AM 1080 KSCO. Listen and be heard. started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and today our guest is Josh Rushing. Mr. Rushing, you've made the case that the conflict with ISIS uh, would be over uh, a lot quicker if we motivated these Sunni tribal leaders who, as you point out, have millions of followers uh, and up to, let's say, you know, 600,000, a million armed fighters, um, if we motivated them and opened up dialogue with them. Is that right?
3: I'm always careful about saying these things in kind of a prescriptive way because I— I just want to be a journalist or report what I see as as opposed to um, a pundit. But I I have to say, I I did ask Ali Hatham, who's a leader of the largest tribe there, if the U.S. had reached out to him, and he said, no, they hadn't, which I found shocking because I know he has a relationship with military commanders, uh, people in Washington from the Awakening Council. And so I found that really surprising. And and I do believe you you could see significant advances in Iraq if the, the tribal leaders were pulled into Baghdad and were included in the political process. I mean, the new government that the U.S. helped usher in is is really the same as the old government. The president is from the same party as Maliki, the Dawa party. They're very close to each other. Maliki moved from president to vice president. You know, the foreign minister moved to this other ministry. It's just a shuffling of the same people that created this situation. And the situation really begins in Baghdad, and it begins in this kind of sectarian thing where everything goes to one group of people in Iraq, and the other people are so angry that, I mean, like, look, the tribes fought in 06, 07 Iraq, or the Al-Qaeda to get them out of there. When ISIS wanted to come back through, the tribes were like, well, anything is better than what we're getting out of Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And they may not have become the Islamic State, but they certainly enabled it. And I think a lot of places where things you've heard about that have been um, accused of being Islamic State were actually the tribes fighting this civil war.
2: Well, this is where I'm going to ask you to, uh, get off the fact page and just give us your opinion. And I, and I like to, one thing I like to do on this program is make a distinction between what are facts that, you know, have been observed and reported and also what's just your, your opinion and your views. Um, why have we not, in your view, opened up a discussion with the Sunni uh, tribal leaders? It seems to me to have a conversation with them. We talk about having conversations with the leaders of Iran and you know and President Obama has certainly uh made it known that he's willing to entertain these conversations that that a lot of these negotiations start with a simple conversation. Why have we been reluctant when in fact this could bring an end to this ISIS conflict so much sooner
3: I'm left guessing, but I do have some guesses and
2: uh, some of them are better
3: informed than others. But I I had someone very high in the U.S. military recently tell me that we have a lack of human intelligence on the ground in Iraq because we pull back all of those assets and all those resources that we don't have eyes on what's actually happening on the front line in the villages where I was. The small teams that I saw of U.S. special forces guys are there to coordinate close air strikes, not to do intelligence. They're not sitting down and talking to tribal leaders or local village leaders or Shia militias. They're simply doing close air support. So we don't have human intelligence when we need it the most. Um, I think the U.S. would be perfectly fine having a conversation with the, the Sunni tribesmen. I mean, they're... They're in no way uh, branded like Iranian-backed militias or something that we have to refuse to coordinate with. These are people that we've talked to in the past. These are people the U.S. have paid in the past. So I really think it's a yes, lack of... Yes, we have a former bonus. relationship
2: with them, and there's no exactly. reason we can't reopen that dialogue again. So, um, you know, and I, I happen to agree with you. I, I think uh, we do not understand the mechanics of what is going on on the ground and that is a dangerous condition because you know that's uh that's what is it fire ready aim the uh, the 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 expression goes um we're we're really not collecting intelligence the way we should and we've known this problem in the middle east for the past uh, decade we've known we've had an intelligence gathering problem, and shame on us that uh, we have not put into place the infrastructure to be able to help us to resolve these things without a military conflict. Um, now, lastly, I, I don't want to let you go without asking you to give your website address, where because I know there are going to be a lot of listeners bombarding me with emails saying, you know, who is this fellow, and why isn't he at the in the Oval Office giving him this intelligence? Um, uh, so, uh, please Give your web a site address where listeners can go to read your blog and also get information about your book.
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, they can always find me through aljazeera.com my show Fault Lines is, is on the, the website so they can find all the information about that. For me personally, I'm at joshrushing.com. I'm joshrushing on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Flickr and YouTube. Like you, you name it, You, you just put joshrushing into Google, you can reach me. Uh, particularly, that, that is actually me on my Facebook page and at joshrushing.com. It says contact me and that, that is actually me. I, I, I'm kind of bad about responding sometimes. I get overwhelmed, but I do try to respond and, and, and I do welcome comments. I mean, I love to hear them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I know the feeling of getting overwhelmed. Sometimes we're up. I, I know you do this, probably do the same thing at 2 a.m. in the morning and you're saying, oh, OK, I'll answer emails now.
3: <laughs> you're exactly right. Some <laughs> person will send me a really thoughtful email and I will not be able to get to it. But then I happen to be sitting in an airport and someone will hit there me you up go. at just the right yeah. time and I start a conversation with them. And so, it, yeah, it's a lot more about that. Yeah,
2: yeah there you go. Well, we, uh, air, that's I think what that's what those airport lounges are for. And that's what everybody's doing in those <laughs> airport lounges. We're kept... Catching up on the emails uh, you know because part of my
3: book on a blackberry yeah there
2: there you go there you go what else are you going to do well that is about all the time that we've got left today but before we say goodbye I do I I do want to take a moment to thank you for not being um, uh, intimidated to tackle these complex messy issues and for bringing these full stories to light we appreciate it very much thank you Mr. Rushing and please stay safe
3: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
2: If your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Josh Rushing, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you miss the full interview with Rushing or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And while you're at our website, take a moment to check out the videos, blogs, articles, and the commentaries by people you know, folks like Richard Branson, and Trudy Styler, Donald Trump and E.O. Wilson, our web team does a great job of keeping our website chocked full of current content, including a calendar which shows where I'll be speaking and when I'll be speaking in your area so you can see me live. So be sure to click on the pull-down menus at the top of the homepage at RebeccaCosta.com. It's easy to remember. It's MyName.com. And while you're enjoying the information that we have posted on that website, be sure you pick up your copy of The Watchman's Rattle, just click on the image of the book and it'll take you right over to the ordering page. Uh, The Watchman's Rattle is the only book that shows how complexity, including complexity of these conflicts over in the Middle East, uh, over-regulation, more data than at any other time in human history, has produced gridlock and an alarming confusion between empirical Facts and unproven beliefs. And you heard a little bit about that today. Our beliefs about Al Jazeera news, which, you know, it's taken the last decade for us to correct. Um, Our beliefs about who ISIS is and is not. Um, and uh, and And, look at how that's led to military action that may or may not have been necessary, uh, folks, when we find out that these beheadings were as a result of refusing to pay a ransom which European nations had to that point in time been willing to pay, well, then it puts into perspective why these beheadings occurred, and uh, and it also puts into perspective that this is more of a civil war and an internal conflict than it is an action aimed specifically at Americans. So go out and get your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. Do it now. Bookstores are completely out of the first editions, and we have very few left in stock. All proceeds of the book go toward keeping quality programming like the interview that you just listened to with Josh Rushing on the air. Now, My guest next week is the president of Sun Life Financial, one of the oldest and largest insurance companies in the United States, Mr. Dan Fishbein. In addition to being a doctor, Fishbein has more than 25 years of employee benefits and group life insurance experience to his credit. And he's going to be here to weigh in on the effect the Affordable Care Act is having on private and public health exchanges and the insurance industry at large. So mark it on your calendars. Don't miss a candid conversation on health care insurance with the president of Sun Life Financial, Dan Fishbein, right here on the only weekly news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report.